Uh, turn with me then, with that in mind, to Psalm 25. I love that we're in a series here at Beulah on the Psalms this summer. It's great to be back. Uh, I've been here a couple of times before and know some of you. I know many of you have some connections to Bethel, and I thank you for that, for your faithful support and encouragement in, uh, in that endeavor. And it's fun to be here uh, with Pastor Greg as well, leading in worship. My, my life, interestingly, over the last few years has become intertwined in many ways with the Newmeyer family, and, uh, and we rejoice at that, actually. Uh, that's been a great thing. I know Greg is a, as a colleague in ministry, but also uh, Pastor Andrea has been a mentor to uh, my daughter while my daughter has been in college and has had a, a tremendous influence in her life, and so I'm thankful for that. And I got to know then uh, their brother, Aaron, uh, real well as a student at Bethel University in one of my classes, and uh, we've had an ongoing uh, friendship that continues even beyond his graduation. So it's uh, a delight how God has kind of brought uh, my life um, in some fun ways in connection with, uh, with the Newmeyer family. Uh, I am a little bummed that I'll miss out on uh, uh, Sweet Tea Sunday next week with the trail mix. Um, it wouldn't surprise you to know that my uh, favorite kind of trail mix is, uh, is to just get a uh, five-pound bag of M&Ms. And uh, uh, I live for chocolate. I, uh, my name is Keith. I'm a chocoholic. And uh, I've become partial to M&Ms because I do keep a supply of emergency chocolate in my car at all times in case I have a chocolate emergency, which happens actually with a fair degree of frequency for myself. And, uh, and I found that in the summertime, uh, I have to get M&Ms because they hold their form in, when the car gets really hot. So if you've been trying to figure that one out, problem solve a little bit. M&Ms do well. They get soft, but they hold their form. Uh, I started with uh, Reese cups, and those just turned into a huge mess in, uh, in that little compartment uh, there between the seats in the front of my car. So uh, uh, I appreciate that. When Pastor Earl asked if I could uh, come and share from the Word this Sunday, he said, as long as I can get some green M&Ms. And so he has generously provided that for me, and I've had a little boost of chocolate this morning. But a, a delight to be with you as we dive into uh, Psalm 25. And I want to read for us just uh, kind of uh, some of the opening verses of that psalm, but then I want to I refer kind of throughout the psalm. So if you keep that in, uh, in your Bibles open, or keep your Bibles open to, uh, to that spot uh, this morning. We're going to kind of keep referencing, continuing to reference some, uh, some words throughout there. But Psalm 25 is a profound statement of David, of his trust in God. And he starts actually with a really powerful image, which we're going to unpack in our time together this morning. But look with me at Psalm 25, verse 1. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame and do not let any enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those um, who are treacherous without cause. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior and my hope is in you all day long. Would you bow your heads with me for a quick minute here? Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter, and we are the clay. In Christ's name, amen. I can remember the moment it involved a decision for us about whether we were going to trust the guidance 
of someone who had sought to direct our paths for two full days in the city of London in England. We were actually on our way to Norway, but we had discovered that we could fly through London, spend a couple days there just for the same price as if we flew directly to Oslo in, uh, in Norway to meet up with some of my wife's family who still live there uh, in the old country, as, uh, as they like to say. And uh, there was a gentleman in my church in Fort Wayne. I was the pastor for 10 years at Avalon Missionary Church in Fort Wayne, and everybody at Avalon knew Orville Schlatter. Orville was about 80 years old, and he taught geography in uh, the Fort Wayne Community School System all of his years. He was an engaging teacher, a uh, spry personality, and, uh, and a hiker. He had traveled the world. He had been to London somewhere around 20 times, I think. And when he found out that our family was going to be going to London, we, uh, he said, I'm going to put together an itinerary for you so that you make maximum possible use of your time there with the things that you're going to see. And so, Sir Orville, as our family came to call him because of all of his time in London, we figured he had to have been knighted at some point, Uh, Sir Orville put together for us a notebook, uh, a plan of how we were going to use our two days in uh, London, complete with descriptions of where we were to stand in certain places, and then Google Maps with those places marked so that we would be able to find them easily, for and, and then timed out, like at certain times. We were to be in certain places. And so my wife dutifully kept the notebook on her as our family made our way throughout the city or the part of central London where we were going to be seeing a lot of these kinds of things. But I remember the moment specifically because we came to a fork in the sidewalk. And I said, quick, let's go this way. We're running behind. And my daughter, who was like in third grade, said, no, dad, Sir Orville said we're supposed to go that way. And I kind of looked and I thought, I'm not sure on this one. I said, I think this is where we need to go. And she said, no, Dad, in the way that my daughter says it, even in third grade, no, Dad, Sir Orville said, where'd she go that way? And a moment came when I had to decide whether or not I was really going to trust Sir Orville to direct our path through central London or whether I was going to go the way I thought I probably should go. You see, it's moments like that, actually, that determine the degree of which, uh, of the kind, the degree of trust that we have in someone. We can say we trust anyone when things seem to be going well, when there's clarity about where we are, or that kind of thing, but, but when we're faced with a moment of confusion, when we're faced with a moment when things aren't going well, that's, that's really when we determine, that, or we reveal at least, the degree to which we genuinely trust the person. And I was faced with trust in that moment. Was I really going to trust Sir Orville, or was I going to go the way that it seemed I probably should go? Now, it wouldn't surprise you to know that we went Sir Orville's way. And as hard as it is to say, that was the right way. We saw exactly what we needed to see. We, were in a, we came out on the other side of this, uh, this uh, kind of green space and, and set of trees, and we were exactly where we were supposed to be on the map that Sir Orville had provided, and uh, much to my daughter's gleeful delight in, uh, in all of that. And, and in some ways, that, that kind of seems humorous, and it's cute, and it's a nice story to open a sermon with, but it's a very different story, isn't it, when we're in the midst of life, and something comes up that raises that sense of confusion. The 
clouds roll in, the metaphorical clouds of life roll in, and we're not sure about this significant decision that we have to make. Can we really trust this time, not Sir Orville, but can we trust God? That's what this psalm is about. Psalm 25, can we trust God with the direction that He's given us in His Word or perhaps the Holy Spirit in a decision that we're making, or, or do we start to second guess, as we like to say? Or worse yet, when things seem to be falling apart, when the storm comes in, not just the clouds of confusion, but when the storm is battering us, the winds of life, and things seem to be uh, in, in a state of disarray, and they're falling apart. And in those moments, we have to decide, can I, really, can I really trust God to be at work in this moment? Can I trust what God would do in, uh, in my life in all of that? And so we read a psalm like Psalm 25 here, and we read the opening verses, and it says, in you, Lord, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame. And we think, like, that's good. You know, David kind of had that down. But if we would look to the end of this psalm, we would find that David is making this profound statement of trust in circumstances that would suggest that there's a lot of upheaval going on, that this is a psalm that flows out of not a, not a I trust in God because things are going so well, but I trust in God in the midst of the raging storm. Look with me, for example, later in the psalm around verse 16, where, where David's words here say, turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. That word affliction there may even refer to disease or sickness. Relieve the troubles of my heart and free me from my anguish. This is not a, this is not a, a statement of profound trust that comes out of, hey, everything's going good, man. God is, you know, God is here, but my anguish. Look on my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. See how numerous are my enemies and how fiercely they hate me. The context of this statement of profound trust is a circumstance of a raging storm, affliction, maybe disease, enemies that hate him, loneliness, confusion. There's this repetition throughout the psalm of God, teach me and show me. Opposition, enemies who, who absolutely hate him and are hostile to him. That makes those opening verses actually much more vivid for us and much more significant. Is when David says, God, I, I put my trust in you. Um, David's not saying that because everything's hunky-dory. He's saying it in the midst of the exact opposite. Ever been in moments of life, seasons of life like that? You sit down across from the doctor at the office and you get a diagnosis that stuns you and the rest of your family and you're uncertain about what will come in the future? That job that you thought would secure your income for the rest of your life, suddenly uh, you've got the pink slip, and you're not sure what you're going to do with all of that. Those are the kind of moments that reveal the degree of trust that we really have in God to, uh, to provide and to lead and to guide each one of us. That's the kind of moment that this psalm flows out of for, uh, for David. And yet, in the midst of circumstances like that, David says, I trust in you, God. I wholly trust in you. In fact, um, the NIV in its current form kind of, kind of covers up, I think, a little bit, kind of hides to some degree the level, kind of this, the, a rich metaphor that David uses in verse 1 of this psalm. If you look in older versions or perhaps in a different translation, David says there in verse 1, to you, O Lord, I lift up 
my soul. And to us, that may sound like nice poetic language for, uh, for a psalm, but actually there's a rich metaphor that's being developed by David here. James Luther Mays, an Old Testament scholar, kind of unpacks that for us when he says to lift something up was the, was the uh, kind of the, the posture of hands. We actually did that when we were singing earlier today with our hands up in testimony to God, but to, to lift hands up to God for, uh, for Hebrews, uh, for, for the people of Israel, was, a, was an expression of entreaty, of, of, of entrust and prayer to God. And the idea that one took one's soul One's conscious self, one's whole life, that's the metaphor that's being developed in the poetry here. One takes one's actual life and lifts it up and says to God, everything about my life is yours. It's a statement of trust. It's a picture. I trust it to you. To lift up my soul to God is is figuratively speaking to take my whole life, every aspect of it, and to place it in God's hands is a profound symbol of trust. And so when David, in the midst of circumstances like that, says, I lift up my soul to you, and that's why the NIV uses the translation, I trust you, I, I literally am taking all of my life and, and placing it in your hands, God. The mess, the craziness that it is, the storm that it is. Which raises the question for me, how is it that David can do that? Because I've had those seasons of my own life. I've had those seasons of life where things seem to be falling apart, things crashing down around me for a variety of reasons, and, uh, and those are tough moments then to trust God. So what is it that enables a David in a psalm like this to say, in moments like this when I have enemies coming around me, I've got affliction, disease, I'm in anguish, I'm lonely, um, I, I don't know what to do, and says, but in the midst of all of that, God, I trust you with my life such as it is. We get some clues in how David develops this psalm. It's an interesting one. It's actually an, an acrostic based on the Hebrew alphabet, so that each couplet starts with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which means that it kind of cycles through a number of key themes. It opens with this profound statement of trust in God, but then the themes that rotate through in the remainder of the psalm kind of unpack, the, give reasons why, why it is that David could trust God in circumstances like this. And I would suggest to you Remind us of reasons why we could trust God in circumstances like that as well. First, we might note that David, David believes he can trust God because God is one who guides and instructs and teaches. And part of, part of a need in a circumstance like this is for somebody to give that direction, for God to be kind of this much better and grander Sir Orville, who's not giving us a guide for some tourist uh, journey through London, but who's, who's guiding us and teaching us and instructing us in the matters of life itself. In fact, we see this cycle through. We see it initially in verses 4 and 5. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. Notice the repetition, even in just one or two verses there. Teach me, guide me, um, instruct me, for you are my God and my Savior. My hope is in you all day long. But, but it doesn't stop there. Throughout the psalm, we see consistent references to this. I mean, he's calling upon God to guide and teach, which suggests that he believes God can and that God will 
God is one who can guide and instruct and teach. He goes on, verses 8 and 9, good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in his way. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. Notice the repetition of that language over and over and over again. Who then, uh, verse 12, who then are those who fear the Lord? He will instruct them in the ways they should choose. They will spend their days in prosperity and their descendants will inherit the land. The Lord confides in those who fear him and he makes his covenant known to them. All of this is language that suggests that God is one who will guide and instruct and teach in circumstances like that. So when the fog of confusion begins to cloud life, God is the one who can bring clarity. And David clings to that in a moment when he is needing some clarity. David is looking for God to give him guidance because God is one who can. Imagine with me that you're a photographer. You, uh, you work for a national news magazine, and you've been assigned to go out and take pictures of a, a big forest fire in California that's taking over a whole section of the park there. And uh, you've been told that there's a plane waiting for you uh, at the airport, and so you get to the airstrip, uh, perhaps running just a little bit late, but you've only got about an hour before the sun sets, so you have a limited time to get the pictures that you need for, uh, uh, for the magazine. And uh, sure enough, as you pull up there at this small little remote airport, um, there's a Cessna sitting there on the airstrip waiting for you with the door open. So you grab your gear and you run out and you jump in the airplane and, uh, and you tell the pilot, hurry up, let's get going. I want you to make several low passes. Come on, come on, come on. I need the, I need the pictures. And so the pilot, who looks a little tense, maybe a little stressed out, closes the door nonetheless, starts her up, and off you go. And things seem a little rough, but you know that it's been a stressful time for everyone there. And you look over at the photographer or at the pilot and you say, all right, now, if you could make about three low passes over over the fire, he says, I'll be able to get the pictures that I need. And the pilot tentatively looks at you, kind of with that stressed look on his face, and he says, why would I do that? And you're upset because you're on the deadline here, and you say to him, well, because I need to get the pictures. I need to get the pictures. And he looks at you, and he says, you mean mean you're not the flight instructor? (laughs) And you have a moment of clarity And you wish that you were the one who could teach and guide and instruct, right? Great to have a God who is that for us in our lives, right? A God who guides and instructs and teaches, directs. Um, God will do that. And uh, one of the things that David makes clear in this psalm is repetitively that idea, I can trust God because he will teach, he will instruct, he will guide, he will make clear for me in the moment, what it is that I need to know. David can trust God because God will teach and guide. But another thing that we see in this psalm is that David can trust God in a circumstance like this as well because of who God is. Because he knows something of the heart of God in all of this. I was over at CDYC, actually, where Pastor Andrea is helping this week last night, and I was talking to the guy who's head of their security team there, and I was, I was kind of saying my goodbyes to folks there because I knew I was going to be here this morning. I wasn't going to get to see everybody there this morning, and I said, I, I said yeah, I got I to gotta go. I'm, I get to preach at um, Beulah Missionary Church over in Goshen this morning, or tomorrow morning. I said, so I can't be there. And he said, oh, what are you teaching on? I said, Psalm 23. And he said, well, what does that mean? Like, what is it about? And I said, well, it's about uh, why God can be trusted. And, uh, and he said, well, God does have a pretty stellar track record. 
And, uh, and I said, yeah, that's kind of one of the points that David's making in the psalm, that he's experienced kind of who God is in all of this. He knows something of God's heart. When we, know, when we know what God is like, when we know the nature of God, when we know the heart of God, then sometimes in those circumstances that raise questions like, where is God in this? What is God doing in this? Can I really trust God in circumstances like this? We can fall back on the, well, I know what God is like. I know who God is. I know God's heart. Let me give you maybe a, an analogy that, uh, that could be helpful in this situation. A number of years, you know, I've been a, I was a pastor for 21 years before I came to Bethel, uh, initially as the director of church relations and now as a professor. And at one of the churches that I was at, um, I, uh, I discovered uh, with the help of uh, uh, of one of our board members, that uh, the director of the preschool at my church had absconded with funds from, uh, from our preschool, um, about $31,000 worth of funds. And, uh, and when I found that out um, with this board member and our treasurer, we sat down and confronted uh, the person who had done that um, and discovered that, that indeed all of this was true, and I terminated that person's employment but I was working with the police department because of the nature of the crime. I was working with our church's lawyer because of the sensitive issues that were involved in human resources and that kind of thing. And I was being counseled by all of them. At this point, you really can't say what has happened. The investigation is sensitive. You open yourself, your church and yourself up for defamation and libel uh, lawsuits if, uh, if you say things in the wrong way. So at this point, literally all you can say is this person's employment has been terminated. They are no longer the director of your preschool. So I remember vividly sitting in a meeting with all of the teachers and aides from the preschool one evening after all of this had happened and saying to them, this person no longer works here. And at this point, that's all I can tell you. In the future, I'll be able to share with you more information. One might suggest that there was a little bit of tension in the room in a moment like that. And, uh, and there's a lot of doubt because actually that director had told them a lot of things that were not truthful about the situation and why she was no longer there. And yet, in the moment, I could only give them so much information. And I remember looking them each in the eye as they, we sat in a circle around the room and saying to them, look, that's all I can tell you in this moment. But you all know me. You've seen how I've handled leadership circumstances over the last eight years that I've been here. You know my heart. You know the kind of heart that I have. And at this point, I'm simply going to have to ask you to trust me. Trust me because you know who I am. You know my heart. Now, a couple of years later, when that former director was arrested and her picture was on all the television screens in the town in which I was serving as pastor, then they understood at least why it is that her employment had been terminated, and they understood something of the sensitivity of the situation. But what I want you to catch in all of that is this analogy when I said to them, look, at this point, you don't know everything, but you know me. Please trust my heart because you know me. There's a sense in which, analogously, David is saying a similar thing. 
in this psalm. God, I can trust you. I may be in circumstances in which I have enemies who are battling me. I have affliction, perhaps disease. I feel lonely. I feel isolated. All of these things. But I know what you are like, God. I know you. I know your heart. And I know that your desire is for my good in this situation. In fact, David highlights the goodness of God. God is a God of mercy and of love and compassion. He emphasizes that. He he appeals to that, in fact. In verse 6, remember, O Lord, your great mercy and your love, for they are from of uh, of old. And then he he kind of recycles that as he pleads for God's help uh, in, uh, in terms of the forgiveness of his sins. He knows that in spite of the circumstances that he's in, that God is a God of great mercy. He is a God of great love. He cares for him. This is, in fact, drawing on the very way in which God had introduced himself to Moses centuries before this in, uh, in, and to his people there at Mount Sinai. In Luke chapter 34, verse 6, uh, we read there of how God passed before Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So David knows that God is a God who loves him. God cares deeply for him, that God has his best interest at heart. Um, And as we know from what God has done in Christ, God would even sacrifice, right, in order to meet the tremendous needs that one might have. So David appeals in a moment like this, to God as a God of mercy, love, and compassion. Secondly here, David emphasizes that God is profoundly good. God is not capricious. God is not unpredictable. God, is, God has David's interest at heart. He's not just trying to be kind of uh, one who, who does whatever, and, and it doesn't seem to make sense in the moment. Anybody ever play apples to apples? My wife would tell you, I hate that game. I absolutely hate that game because it's so unpredictable. And I tend to be like a rational, logical person to me. And when somebody picks the card that that person threw out there and I want to go, what connection does that have to do with the card that is there? And they say, I don't know, I just liked it. And I say, what? Like that's, that drives me crazy. Some of you like that. Some of you do that on purpose to drive people like me crazy, right? But the unpredictability of that, and David, but David knows that God is not like that. Um, that God is, God is faithful, actually, is the word that David uses. God is consistent, loyal. In fact, some of the words that David draws on here emphasize that loyal, faithful love for God's people. God might do some things that we don't understand. Actually, he does that a lot. But we know that in the end, he is profoundly good and that those are consistent with his goodness. David knows that he can trust God, even in the midst of circumstances like this, because he can trust the heart of God. He knows the character of God in this. And that ultimately, God is working for the good, even if in the moment that's difficult for David to see enables David to say, things may seem to be falling apart, but Lord, I, I lift up my soul to you. I, I can place all of that in your hands. Have you been in moments when you had to do that? 
when you drew on what you knew of God, you knew that he was loving, you knew that he was caring, you knew that he was profoundly good in character, and you were able to say, God, in you I place my trust. Before I was pastor in Fort Wayne, Indiana, my wife and I planted a couple of churches. One of them was down on the corner, kind of the southwest corner of Indianapolis, and uh, we were a daughter church of a church uh, on the south side of Indianapolis there, and kind of the way that they did church planting, I was employed by both churches at the same time, and the mother church paid my salary, and essentially our new church plant could buy off a day of my week in terms of my time as they were capable of. It was kind of a way of uh, both encouraging them to become independent quickly, um, but also providing uh, a pastor to, uh, to plant this church. And one of the joys of planting this church was that much more quickly than in our plan, that new church was able to pick up my salary. We were able to become totally independent of the mother church. It was a joyous time, and uh, we were going to have a great celebration on that Sunday. In fact, some of the elders from the mother church were going to come over, and we were going to do kind of a passing of the baton thing in our worship and a celebration, giving God the glory for what He was doing in the growth that was happening in this new church, and then we're going to have a a, a big feast afterwards um, and uh, carry in dinner and that kind of thing because us church people, we love to eat, and, uh, and that's the proper way to celebrate. And, uh, and so we were all excited about this. And so on the Saturday night before this was to happen, my wife and I went to bed, and uh, we mentioned earlier that my wife is an accountant. And you accountants think differently than, uh, than the rest of us. So we're lying there in bed in the dark, and I'm kind of talking about my sense of excitement, about how things are going, and this new church kind of picking up our independence much sooner than we had planned. And there's kind of this long pause. And finally, my wife, the accountant, says, well, what if this church fails? What are we going to do? And there's this long, awkward pause in the dark when I'm realizing, you know, I really hadn't considered that possibility. Like, this is my job. This is the way I'm providing for my family. And I didn't want to say I don't know, but that's what I was thinking. And after a long, awkward pause in the silence of the dark, I finally said to her, well, I, I guess we're just going to have to trust God. And the reality began to set in. There's a sense in which all of life, right, is I've got to trust God. It's just when things are going easy or we don't consider the potential of the problems that might ensue, we think, well, this is all good because I've kind of got it under control. But in those moments when maybe I realize I don't, I've got to trust God. That's when knowing the character of God is so important. That's when knowing that God is one who guides and instructs and directs is so important. That's why I used to tell the people of my church, and now I tell my students at Bethel, um, that's why theology is so important, because knowing who God is then begins to impact how we live with Him and for Him in all that we do. So it's important to know that God is profoundly good. It's important to know that God is loving and caring. It's important to know that God is one who teaches and guides and instructs, because there are times when the fog comes in and begins to shroud some of what's around us, or the storm begins to rage and raises questions. And let me simply leave you with this, that a good friend of mine, Dr. Wes Gehrig, used to teach at Fort Wayne Bible College many years ago. He helped actually with the NIV translation of the Bible. We used to say, Dr. Wes helped write the Bible, a way of kind of referring to his powerful Bible knowledge. And he would keep me sharp. Uh, because I was his pastor, and he knew a lot more about it than I did. Um, but, uh, um, but he used to say, never doubt in the dark, 
what God has revealed to you in the light. Never doubt in the dark what God has revealed to you in the light. So on a Sunday like this, when we look at the Word and everything seems good in the sanctuary at the church, we say, you know, God is good. God leads and guides. Sear that into your heart and your mind. Because the moment will come when the fog sweeps in, when the storm rages, and you'll need to say to God, I trust you. Because I know who you are. I know what you're like. In those moments, (laughs) we're going to have to say, well, I guess guess we're just going to have to trust God. And that's when we'll know whether we really do. Lord, I place my soul in your hands. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the reminder from David here of the reasons why we can trust you in those moments when fog and storms cloud what has seemed to be so good. May we so know your character, your goodness, your loving kindness, your faithfulness, your nature as one who guides and directs and instructs and reveals, so that when we find ourselves in those moments, we can trust you, the depth of our souls. We pray it all in your name. Amen.